We've had some breaking news in the past 30 minutes. Boris Johnson's ethics advisor has resigned. You might wonder why it has taken him so long. It's not a title anyone would covet, I can't imagine. Now, we don't have much information about this at this point. He's just released a statement saying, I regret I'm I'm resigning. Um, but we're assuming there is going to be um, some more details sort of coming through as the show goes on. We have a lot to talk about in the meantime, most notably the fallout from the government's failure to send a first flight to Rwanda. I'm joined for a change on Wednesday by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Good evening, Michael. I sort of nodded off there where you start to talk about Lord Guy, but we'll get to that shortly. <laughs> You're banned from saying that anything we're discussing on the show might not be of the utmost interest and you know, it's very exciting if the, if the ethics guy has resigned. In the last week, the government has relentlessly pursued its first Rwanda deportation flight for refugees. However, as I imagine you're already aware, that flight never left. That was because every asylum seeker due to be on the flight was granted an individual reprieve. And then, most dramatically, because of an intervention from the European Court of Human Rights. The Tories are furious, with some calling for Britain to leave the jurisdiction of that court. Times journalist Patrick Maguire reported, Scale of unrest on Tory WhatsApp from serving members of the government payroll will seriously worry number 10 in the Home Office tonight. His Cabinet Office PPS, Brendan Clark-Smith from Bassett Law, writing to the 70-strong Common Sense Group, This is effectively a war now. So the Common Sense Group have declared a new war. MP Jonathan Gullis also had a pretty dramatic statement. I know many of you across Stoke-on-Trent, North, Kidsgriff and Talk will be frustrated that the first flight of illegal economic migrants, wow, illegal economic, that's, that's incredible, to Rwanda has not been able to happen. This policy was always going to face mass action from lefty lawyers and activists. It's clear that the ECHR prevented the flight from departing after efforts in UK courts were exhausted. The ECHR has no place in the UK judicial system. The government needs to free itself from it entirely. That's completely wild to say this is a flight of illegal economic migrants because the whole point of this policy is that people would be sent to Rwanda before their cases have been assessed. That, that's the whole point of it. Even Priti Patel would not claim that there are no asylum seekers going to Rwanda because you know, it's specific that that is what's going on. Their asylum claim is not going to be heard in this country. In any case, Gullis quickly changed that last sentence, um, saying we need to essentially leave the ECHR to make it more moderate. He said, the ECHR's role in UK law needs looking at urgently, and much more subtle, even though it, it retained um, three exclamation marks. Now, that might be because someone told him that the ECHR underwrites the Good Friday Agreement, and Gullis is the parliamentary private secretary to Brandon Lewis, who is Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So, a little bit awkward. The radical idea of leaving the ECHR wasn't just these minor figures. It wasn't quashed by anyone at the top of government. This was Boris Johnson yesterday. Is it not time to come out of the U European Convention of Human Rights to be able to set your own rules to stack the odds in your favour then when these legal challenges come about? It's certainly the case that uh, the legal... Uh, fraternity, sorority, whatever, their, their legal world is very good at picking up uh, ways of, uh, of trying to stop uh, the government from uh, upholding what we think is, is a, a sensible law and trying to, we're trying to make a distinction between uh, legal pathways to the UK, which we support. We want people to be able to come here in fear of their lives. But we want them to do it 
legally and safely. And that's why we have all the safe and legal routes that are open to, to people. What we want to do is to show the people traffickers that uh, they're, they're breaking the law, they're risking people's lives, and it won't work anyway. Now, uh, if, will it be necessary to ch change some laws to help us uh, as we go along? It may very well be. And uh, all these options are under constant review. Today in the House of Commons, Priti Patel seemed to egg on anti-ECHR Tories. Does she agree with me that last night's decision undermined the original purpose of the convention by the court and that the court stands a very real risk of losing the confidence of the British people as it seeks to undermine our domestic legal structures? Yeah. If I may, my, my honourable friend makes, makes a very, very strong and important point. Notwithstanding the niceties of this particular judgment, we are going to have to grasp the nettle and extend the principle of taking back control to the Convention, aren't we? Yeah. My, my, my right honourable friend, he's trying to tempt me, <laughs> um, will know wholeheartedly um, my own views on taking back control, but also on the need for controlled migration, Madam Deputy Speaker. And on the BBC's World at One, Attorney General Suella Braverman had this to say. You are actively considering, in, as a result of this ruling, pulling out of the, that treaty, the European Convention on Human Rights. I've got to respect the proper decision-making process that has to go on within government. All options are on the table. No firm position has been reached. But okay. as I say, All options our are on the table for 10 years absolutely clear. Of a Bill of Rights. So I was just wondering if this changes things, if this shifts the dial. Well, I think what is clear is that it's a very frustrating, frustrating situation that we find ourselves in. I think as your previous... Uh, speaker just said, Marco Longhia, a friend and colleague of mine in Parliament, said it, many people will have assumed that we took control back of our borders when we left the European Union and we designed our own migration rules. And now what people are seeing and will be rightly frustrated and confused by is that a foreign court has seemingly cut across rulings of our domestic courts, parliamentary statute and a UK policy designed okay, to address so domestic objectives. So now, it's worth noting only two countries have ever voluntarily left the ECHR. Greece logged off temporarily while it was under military dictatorship in 1969, rejoining when democracy was restored in 1974. And Russia left this year after it was threatened with expulsion over its war on Ukraine. So Britain wouldn't be in great company if the Tory headbangers get their way. We'll be talking about the politics of all this in one moment. First, though, to gain clarity on the actual legal battles we've seen fought over the past 48 hours, I spoke to Jacqueline McKenzie. Jacqueline is partner and head of immigration law at Lee Day Solicitors, and she represented one of the asylum seekers whose deportation to Rwanda was blocked. I began by asking her to describe that legal process. On Monday night, an NGO, Movement for Justice, contacted us and said, there's a gentleman, a Kurdish Iraqi man, who um, had been crying and he's in immigration detention. He was in Colnbrook Immigration Detention Centre and that he had no lawyers. Uh, my firm had been involved in the generic arguments representing asylum aid and freedom for torture. So we weren't actually involved in individual cases. And it was Monday night. You know, the flight was leaving on Tuesday. So I thought, oh, no, I don't know. You just thought, gosh, this poor man, you know, is, could be transported off to Rwanda without anybody having properly looked at his case. So I said, well, send me some information. And in it, 
were his medical records from the immigration detention center. And the immigration detention center doctors aren't usually friendly to us. They very rarely say anything that helps our case. But in these notes was a note that this man had the signs of being a victim of torture. And then when we got to speak to him, his own story was that he had been trafficked. And we thought, my goodness me, why is this man deemed inadmissible to claim asylum in the UK, get treatment here, etc.? So we immediately set about writing to the Home Office. The first stage is to make an, an application by way of a letter called a pre-action protocol to the Home Office, in which you state all the facts. And of course, at that stage, you don't have a lot of facts, but we had some corroborated evidence from the doctors in the detention centre. So we sent all that through and the Home Office rejected that. And so then we went to what's called the upper tribunal in the immigration asylum chamber and a judge uh, sided with us. And this was about six o'clock interim relief. This is only about interim relief. So the judge isn't saying that there's any merits in the case or there aren't merits in the case. They're simply saying we accept that there are some issues here and we're going to give you injunctive relief so that your case can be looked at further. And that's all the other cases, all the generic cases uh, were about as well. Interim relief until the substantive case on their points about the lawfulness of the scheme is heard in six to eight weeks time. So a judge did that at about six o'clock and we were all very jubilant and our client was sat on a coach would you believe, waiting to be transported to the plane. And for three hours, the Home Office were telling their lawyers that they want to appeal. So they may well have delayed the flight whilst they appealed, but our client was sitting there, God knows what was going through his mind, possibly a victim of torture, and now being tortured again by the British government. So he sat there for three hours whilst all this toing and froing was going on between the, our counsel and ourselves as lawyers and their home officers' lawyers, and around 9 o'clock, and remember the flight was meant to leave at 9.30, around 9 o'clock they decided that they would cancel his removal directions, and he still stayed on the coach for a little bit longer, not knowing what had happened. So to me, that's really quite a disgraceful thing to happen to somebody who may well turn out to be a victim of torture. There is no clear reason to me or rationale as to why we're treating fellow human beings in this way. It's just, it's disgraceful. So that was our case. But what happened with other people, other lawyers, did not get injunctive relief in the UK. So they used a, a device called Rule 39. And the European Court of Human Rights looked at those applications. I think there were three of them for three individuals. And they gave injunctive relief. And, it, you know, all this nonsense about coming out of the European Court of Human Rights because of this, it wasn't. They gave injunctive relief. But the Home Office or the British government can ignore that because their decisions are not binding on the British government. They're usually quite influential and pre-Brexit, they would ordinarily have gone with whatever the European Court of Human Rights said. But on this occasion, Secretary of State said, well, we're going to ignore it. And so that then forced their lawyers to have to go to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal also agreed and gave injunctive relief. So the final decisions were actually made here in the UK. So it's a British Court of Appeal that said, we are going to force the government to follow the ruling of the European Court on Human Rights. That's incredibly interesting. What would it mean for the government to leave the European Court on Human Rights? I know you're saying it's, it's not as relevant as some ministers might like us to think, but are there other reasons they might want to use this as an excuse to leave it? And, and how significant would that be? The European Court of Human Rights is a really important uh, court for UK citizens. People use it for all manner of things. 
disability rights, equality, the housing issues have gone there. Lots of immigration things are, are, are dealt with there. But it is for anything where you think your rights, your human rights have been impinged. And I think it's a, a safeguard, really, especially the more layers of courts there are, the more safeguards there, there are. I'm not really saying that there's anything wrong with our court system, but I think it's quite handy to have another further appellate body that might look at things because, you know, sometimes some decisions, in my opinion, are, are sometimes you know, impacted on by politics and all sorts of influences that come into play. I mean, opening the floodgates, for instance, is something that often comes into play in courts. So I'm quite pleased that we've got a further appellate body. And what the citizens of this country don't realise it's not the government. The government's not going to be affected in any way, but we will be if we can no longer bring cases there. It's not easy to bring a case there. It's very expensive. So most people don't do it. But some people do and get justice. We know there's a judicial review coming up in, in, in July. And what I'd like clarity on, so that there's been lots of success in the courts for this particular flight. If it were the case that this flight was planned for August and the judicial review had already found that the Rwanda policy was legal, would all of these appeals go out the window? Would that flight have taken off with, with everyone on board? I doubt it, because if the substantive hearing finds that this policy is legal, then there's going to be appeals. This is something that's going to be in court for years, isn't it? You know, probably go all the way up to the Supreme Court. But there are some real concerns here. The uh, UNHCR, who's the lead body in the world, on safeguarding the rights of refugees and planning what should happen to refugees, etc., and you understand how the Refugee Convention is meant to work alongside the International Declaration of Human Rights. And they've raised some legitimate concerns, and those concerns are going to feature heavily in the substantive hearing, which is meant to happen in six to eight weeks' time. You know, we're a democracy, and this plan, this migration plan has not gone anywhere near Parliament. It's a memorandum of agreement between our government and the Rwandan government. There are concerns in about Rwanda, and we don't want to go too much into that, but there are all sorts of concerns. Even if there weren't those concerns, Britain is a global player. We are signatories to international convention. We get hardly anybody, because of the 100 million people displaced, there are 26 million refugees around the world at the moment. There are 5 million people seeking asylum around the world at the moment. You know, Poland has just taken in 3 million Ukrainians. Trinidad and Tobago, not a wealthy Western country, a population of just over a million, has taken in almost half a million people from Venezuela because they've been forced to flee because of the US sanctions on that economy. So why are we saying that we can't cope? We gave asylum to 14,500 people last year. We're expecting to get about 30,000 people crossing the channel. There is no crisis. It's manufactured for political gain. That was immigration lawyer Jacqueline McKenzie speaking to me earlier today and laying out the legal questions at stake. As for the politics, there's been a lot of ambivalence about the Tory defeat in the courts, with many people suggesting the short-term victory for asylum seekers may have been a battle Boris Johnson and Priti Patel were gagging to fight. Potentially, they think they've lost the battle but are in line to win the war. Former human rights lawyer Keir Starmer seems to agree. This is not a battle to emphasise. He didn't mention the government defeat at all today at Prime Minister's questions. And this afternoon, Jessica Elgott from The Guardian tweeted, Starmer's spokesman has declined to say whether Labour would cancel the Rwanda policy if in government, though deeply critical of the policy's cost and efficiency, <laughs> but declines to clarify if Starmer believes it is morally wrong. So the only problems with this policy are the cost 
and the efficiency. So very technocratic problems with a plan to you know, deport people who have <laughs> risked their lives, essentially, to get to Britain, these people in desperate straits, being deported to a country they have nothing to do with. The problem with that, oh, it's a bit expensive, isn't it? Not necessarily the most efficient way to achieve your goals. Aaron, what's your take on the politics of this? Was this a loss in the courts that the government won't mind losing? Are they thinking, great, this gives us an excuse to stick it to Europe and move the conversation on from Partygate or whatever? And, and if so, does that matter? They're loving it, Michael. They're loving it. If you look at the changes in polling, I think there was a poll out at the weekend, had the Tories two points behind Labour. Poll out today, I think, was at YouGov, has the Tories up three, and they're still six points behind. But, you know, it's, it's the middle of the electoral cycle in terms of the next general election. I mean, that's perfectly tolerable. It would often be a 10-point lead for Ed Miliband when it was David Cameron ahead of 2015, around the same time. So the electoral polling for them is now solidifying, if nothing else. You've seen polling in regards to the popularity of the Rwanda policy, I believe now it has a plurality, according to the latest polls. I think it was 44% support it, 40% are against. But that's actually a big increase in terms of the numbers of people who support it. Uh, and of course, like you say, it's just changed the, it's changed the public conversation. And this is what the liberal left never, never understand. In politics, you have to make the weather. You have to make the weather. We saw that with Brexit. We saw that with austerity. You have to tell a compelling story and make the weather. And if you don't, then you'll just have to adapt and respond to the story that the other side tells. And that happened again and again and again. There was a brief, brief respite from that post-Corbyn, post-Brexit, where actually we started to have a conversation around austerity and centering regional and income inequality. The Tories appropriated that through their language of levelling up. So you saw a shift, uh, the dial ticking a little bit left at least, on a few policies of economic and regional inequality uh, over a course of four or five years, I think that's now going again. And, and that's sadly, that's the, that's, the, that's the genre of politics that people like the Labour leadership and liberal media in this country prefer. They say, look, if something's contentious, don't, don't, don't get involved because that's a trap. Also, by virtue of that, then, the only thing you're ever going to get involved in is something where there's a clear a clear majority of opinion in your favour. Well, of course, the government won't really go on that territory. I mean, it does occasionally something like Channel 4, but it goes for wedge issues. And this is a classic Linton Crosby technique. We see it again and again and again. If you can get 52, 54, 55% of the public on side on an issue, then you need to nail it. Now, important to say that doesn't always work. We saw that in the Canadian election a few years ago over hijab. But unless Labour stand up on this, uh, they're going to get torn, all, torn to shreds and, and pulled all over the shop. And sadly, that's entirely what I think we should be expecting. Particularly ironic, given, like you say, Keir Starmer is a former human rights lawyer. What I would say is, finally, this figure, this figment of the collective liberal imagination in this country, that somehow Keir Starmer was a campaigning, progressive lawyer, human rights champion. I mean, that's been dismantled in the last two years. But quite clearly on this issue, this is one issue where he should be in his own He's missing an action. So it's not just the policies that he's not sticking by in terms of the man that ran for Labour leadership in 2020. It's also the persona. He has completely abandoned that. It's interesting sort of what you're mentioning there, because I, I think, you know, from the perspective of political strategy, when it comes to migration, especially, this is where this, this comes up the most. There's sort of two arguments, you know, that progressives might make about how you can win this argument against conservatives. One is to say, just try and massively lower the salience 
of immigration. So the amount essentially that people are thinking about immigration. So obviously this happened when, for example, we had a pandemic because everyone was thinking about the pandemic. It could also happen if you, you know, fight an election on austerity, for example. So you need a big issue to, to replace it. And people think maybe, maybe it's just the, the less people talk about migration, the better. That's one argument. I don't think it's completely implausible. The other is to say we have to fight this head on. This is going to be a key issue. So we have to win that battle and make those arguments. There's sort of two options. And I think it's quite clear that in this case, Keir Starmer's done neither because he hasn't chosen another issue to increase in salience. So what should we talk about if not asylum seekers? Keir Starmer doesn't seem to have any answer to that. And he also doesn't have an answer to, well, if we're talking about asylum seekers, what's your position? Because he's, he's sort of, you know, just refusing to get involved in that, which means that he kind of has nothing to say. Let's go straight to our next story. The Tory plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda has generated opposition from a pretty broad coalition. It's, of course, no surprise human rights lawyers and activists oppose the policy, but the Tories made of the expected Prince Charles and the entire leadership of the Church of England to come out against the move. Yet in this difficult moment, it seems there is still one institution the Tories can rely on. This was Amal Rajan on the BBC. What does a humane and effective asylum policy look like? And among sovereign nations, which jurisdiction should be its ultimate arbiter? These are just two of the foundational questions to which the government's Rwanda policy was part of the answer. Public opinion is relatively evenly split and, of course, changes regularly. If the policy's aims include being tough in enforcing national social contracts, creating dividing lines with opponents and garnering positive headlines, it has achieved a modicum of success. If the aim is to deter asylum seekers or reduce channel crossings and pressure on our asylum system, it is just too early to know. Context matters here. Several other countries, from Australia to Denmark, are pursuing similar paths. Britain's deal with Rwanda was an agreement between two sovereign nations. At 28,526 last year, and possibly double that this year, there has been a sharp rise in the number of people arriving here by small boats across the channel. Last year, 75% of them were men under 40, 30% were Iranians. This year, the most common nationality is Afghan. These are, of course, desperate, destitute people undertaking huge risk in pursuit of sanctuary and freedom. Later today, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, will be making a statement to the Commons. And we're joined now by Therese Coffey, who is the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. That was, to my mind, a really bizarre introduction to an interview of a government minister. The, the host basically made clear that he accepted all of her fundamental talking points before they even got going. Why do that? What is the point in doing that if you're supposed to be you know, a journalist holding a politician to account? And here I'm, I'm specifically talking about everything Amal Rajan said after he said context matters. I'm laying out the context. Because the context he highlighted was, was frankly bizarre. Raj, Rajan emphasised that the policy is already being pursued by other countries from Australia to Denmark, he said. But he didn't mention the many, many more countries that aren't taking this step. Why compare ourselves only to the most hostile countries around? Rajan also stressed that Britain's deal with Rwanda was a deal between two sovereign nations. Now, that's true. It also seems to me completely irrelevant. It's the rights of asylum seekers that are in question here, not the governments making the deal. It's a bit like suggesting extraordinary rendition was permissible because Morocco or Egypt agreed to host America's torturees. It, it, it's completely besides the point. Then as more context, objectively sounding, this is the context, Rajan highlights the numbers coming over. But while 28,000 might sound like a big number, the missing context 
the context he didn't mention is how that compares to everyone else. A House of Commons briefing paper from March contains this chart. It shows Britain receives a comparatively tiny number of asylum applications compared to most of Europe, including in France, where we always complain the channel crossing migrants should apply. Why don't they apply there? We've got too many migrants here, just apply in France. Well, guess what? They accept and they receive a lot more applications than we do. He also didn't mention that the number of asylum claims Britain grants is even more pathetic. We are way behind almost all major European countries. And as a proportion of our population, we accept half as many applicants as the EU average. So essentially there, you've got this context. I'm going to give here this context. And the context to me, that sounded like him saying, look, there is an exceptional problem. It calls for exceptional measures. And by the way, the government's plan isn't even that exceptional. We've got countries from Australia to Denmark doing it. Now, I think there's only about four countries doing it. So from Australia to Denmark potentially overstates it. And he's saying, look, exceptional measures call for exceptional responses. And this isn't even that exceptional anyway. Other countries are doing it. The complete opposite is the case. It's not a problem, but you can say it's a challenge. The challenge Britain has when it comes to asylum seekers is not exceptional. It's completely, completely normal. Our response is exceptional. It's exceptionally gruesome and brutal. And there are only about three other countries in the world considering it. Aaron, what did you think about that introduction to, to a government minister? As well? When I was listening to that live, I was kind of like, well, mm. if, he's, if he's given such a hostile introduction, I assume he's going to be interviewing like a, a lawyer on behalf of those asylum seekers. And that's why he's given such a, a one-sided introduction. But no, it was to speak to a government minister. Yeah, Amal Rajan is a very smart cookie. I mean, we've both met him, I believe. Um, he's, he's a very intelligent guy. He's, he can be a very diligent, thorough journalist. So I, I think he has approached this story in this way for a very simple reason, which is, as a journalist, on controversial stories like this where the government is vulnerable, he's in the government's pocket. Now, why do I say that? Amal Rajan was once the editor of the independent newspaper owned by the Lebedevs. Uh, it was the only newspaper, I believe, in 2015 to tell its readers to vote for the coalition. Precisely how you do that isn't clear, uh, but it was a, a signal of support for austerity. And I think by many measures, the worst government this country's had in living memory. You've not just got Amal Rajan that then goes to the BBC Today program. Before him, you have Sarah Sands. Like him, he works for Evgeny Lebedev. Uh, but rather than being at the Independent, of course, she was at the Evening Standard. And I find it particularly interesting that Lebedev has not one, but two of his most senior journalists go from his outlets to the BBC Today program, one of the most important opinion-making, opinion-defining politics and current affairs shows in the UK today. And of course, Evgeny Lebedev, as we know, is a, a Tory lord. Now, this doesn't mean that Evgeny Lebedev is on the phone telling Amal Rajan what to say and what not to say, but I think that bizarre context, uh, as you've already highlighted, Michael, makes absolutely no sense unless it's situated within this broader understanding of the kinds of circles that Amal Rajan works in, the kinds of people he owes. Without Evgeny Lebedev, Amal Rajan is not where he is today, working at the BBC, having such a, pro a prodigious, precocious journalistic career at such a young age. So for me, this is a, a very classic example of a journalist representing the interests of people who, frankly, they owe. And I, I think that's a problem. And I think where people sort of get upset with our criticisms of the BBC, well, I'm sorry. I do have a criticism of a public service broadcaster which produces journalism that bad because we're paying for it. And it's awful. 
And frankly, it's public relations for only one side of the argument. People might say, look, he didn't say anything that was untrue. You know, you, Michael Walker, might have chosen a different set of facts as context for that interview, but why, why are yours any better than his? And how I'd respond is essentially to say, look, to be an impartial journalist in that situation, now, what the government is, is hoping from even journalists who essentially support them is not for them to say, oh, it's brilliant to deport people to Rwanda. Like, no, one, no one's claiming it's brilliant. Priti Patel isn't even claiming it's brilliant to deport people to Rwanda. The government talking point is, look, you might not like that we're deporting people to Rwanda before assessing their claims, but, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And what's your alternative? And, and so their challenge is, we've got this massive crisis. If you don't support this brutal policy, you're going to have to suggest another one. Now, everyone seems to close their eyes and put their fingers in their ears when anyone mentions, maybe we could have safe passages, maybe we could allow people to apply in France to come to Britain. That would stop them crossing the channel. But putting that to one side, the government's first job is to say we have a crisis here. The number of people trying to get to Britain is a broken asylum system, is representative of a broken asylum system, which is what we keep hearing from conservative politicians. There is a crisis. There is a crisis. That means desperate, extreme measures are warranted. It's not true. And yet that very objective sounding context, all of that was essentially intended to say there is a crisis. Let's be clear. There is a crisis, right? That's, uh, that's the most important ideological job for the government done before the interview has even started. And it is, it's difficult to explain, you know, for, from, a, from a purely journalistic standpoint, which I suppose is why Aaron is going down those avenues, which I do find pretty persuasive in this context. Let's go to our next story. It's five years since the tragedy at Grenfell claimed the lives of 72 people. That was after flammable cladding meant a fire in one kitchen engulfed a whole tower. On Tuesday, memorials were held to remember those victims. Events began with a service at Westminster Abbey. The speaker here is Marlene Anderson, whose father, Ray Bernard, died in the fire. It's hard to believe it's been five years because it actually feels like it happened yesterday. To the world, the night of the 14th was a tragedy that happened on that night and into the early morning. A night that will remain in history as the biggest loss of 72 lives from the household fire. But for the next of kin, the bereaved survivors and the community, it's a night that we're forced to live and relive every single day. I often describe it like having an open wound that's trying to heal but can't because the band-aid constantly gets ripped off. Because even when you're desperate for respite and some reprieve, there is none. Later in the day, there was a multi-faith memorial service at the base of the tower. It had stirring performances by community choirs as mourners and residents sat in the shadow of Grenfell. And as the victims' names were read out, reefs were laid for them. Children who survived the fire released one by one 18 balloons, each representing a Grenfell child who perished. It was followed by a silent march through the surrounding streets. Now it goes without saying, the Grenfell tragedy is a stain on British society. Through a mixture of government neglect and corporate malice, 72 men, women and children were killed before their time. A community was scarred for life. It's worth considering though, at this moment, this five-year anniversary, what we have learnt since June 2017 about the events and decisions that led to that tragedy. Are we any closer to any semblance of justice being done? And how could a similar disaster be prevented? Earlier today, I spoke to Peter Apps, who is deputy editor at Inside Housing. 
For almost five years, Peter has been closely covering the public inquiry set up by Theresa May into the Grenfell disaster. I began by asking him, what are the main things we've learnt from that inquiry? Uh, it's obviously been a very long process, which has exposed an awful lot about an awful lot of organisations. I think that something of significance which has run through the whole process has been the level of knowledge that the organisations from central government through to various large corporations that sold the products used on Grenfell Tower had of the dangers of something like this happening before the fire. Um, uh, the government had testing from as early as 2001, which demonstrated that the, the specific cladding material used in Grenfell was a serious danger and was told multiple times that it was in use in buildings in the UK. The, the, the corporations had their own private testing, which revealed that their products would burn and, and burn fiercely in a fire. I think at the start of this process, people could probably have guessed that we were going to hear things about deregulation and hear things about cost cutting and, and processes not being followed properly and responsibility being passed around a long supply chain. I don't think many people would have guessed the extent to which, you know, organisations and, and people in positions of power knew that there was a risk of a fire like Grenfell happening. Um, and, and for me, that's been the, the most shocking part of the inquiry. For this anniversary, you put together a thread of some of the, the most significant things you think we've learned from, from this inquiry. And I just want to read out the ones which I find most shocking. These are all about um, cladding manufacturers and sort of internal discussions which were taking place before Grenfell happened or before that disaster happened. It is revealed that cladding manufacturer Arconic had testing from 2004, which showed the devastating fire performance of its ACM. So that's the, the cladding material, but kept selling it. Internal emails discussing this say, quote, it's hard to make a note about this because we are not clean. Um, another tweet of yours says, when a consultant queried the suitability of Kingspan's insulation for high rises, a former manager said they could, quote, go fuck themselves or Kingspan would, quote, sue the arse off them. And one more tweet from you. You say, discussing the company's claim that its insulation had a class zero fire performance. So that was what you needed for it to be able to be put on these tall buildings. One employee texts another to call its testing, quote, a bit of a cheat. All we do is lie in here, his colleague replies. Now, I think anyone reading those tweets of yours, you've covered this, this inquiry, I think more closely than anyone else, is just going to be absolutely shocked at what was going in in these companies where people seemed to know that the cover-ups they were involved in could lead to countless deaths. As, as you just said, it didn't seem to be a secret. And what is going on? How can we make sense of what was going on in these companies before this disaster took place? Certainly the iconic email that you read out there, that was an exchange between quite senior members of that company, um, at least the, the, the French arm, which was selling the product. You know, there was corporate knowledge of the test. It was, the test in 2004 was the first test, but it wasn't the last test. They carried on testing the product to see whether or not it was a rogue result uh, through the 2010s and, and continued to find that, that danger. And at, at every point, discussed the the issues among their team. Um, there, there's another one which which is quite often cited about Arconic when uh, their marketing manager discussed the possibility of a fire involving an ACM cladding product, which is what they were selling, killing 60 to 70 people. And he, he put that in a, a little briefing document he wrote in um, 2007, which is 10 years before Grenfell. It's, it's hard to get your head around, really, what people were thinking at that time. I think it, it does show that 
sometimes being involved in an organization people sort of put personal morality to one side i guess and 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 their interest is the interest of the corporation and they they um don't uh apply what i think a lot of people would consider um you know the, the normal standards of morality to, to to their behavior i think it feels more like this is what the corporation was what is in the needs of the corporation is really the only question that's being asked i think you know it 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 a big theme of the Grenfell Tower inquiry has been deregulation and the lack of regulation of, of these organizations um and the, the the extent to which those testing regimes relied on them releasing the information themselves that is their commercial property the the, the the testing results and I think that you can see because of the attitudes that are expressed in the emails that that, that you mentioned there how obvious it is that you need external regulation of, of of their behavior and you need people holding them to account because they're not going to do it by themselves. I mean, as far as I understand the story of this inquiry, we're hearing lots of missed opportunities where this tragedy could have been prevented. Obviously, we couldn't have a more tragic wake-up call than the Grenfell tragedy. Is there any sign that these failures of regulation are being fixed or have they been fixed? Is it still the case that these private companies can sort of essentially fix the data to make it seem as if unsafe products are safe and then that gets put in places which puts thousands of people's lives at risk? The one significant regulatory change has been to to outlaw the use of combustible materials on tall buildings and then partially outlaw them on, on medium-rise buildings. And that, that is significant. We'll, we'll stop new buildings being built with the kinds of cladding materials that went on to Grenfell Tower. The government has had far less success uh, in its efforts to, to oversee fixing buildings that were built before the Grenfell Tower fire with those those sorts of materials on their walls. And because this was a failure of regulation, it wasn't just a kind of one-off bad job. There are thousands of buildings like that out there. And the, the, the progress on that has been too slow. And it's, it's for the, the people who've lived in those blocks, it's been a really hellish experience in a way that it didn't need to be. I think sort of more broadly, when you're talking about trying to prevent a repeat disaster, it's, it's a bit of a mistake, a lot of the experts say, to just focus narrowly on one thing, which is combustible cladding, and say, right, let's fix that. I think what the government hasn't done is 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 go beyond that and say, well, why don't we have a second staircase as a, as a, as a mandatory condition in buildings in the UK? Why are we one of the only countries in the world that doesn't require that? You know, why don't we we have sprinklers in 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 particularly these, these social housing blocks that were built after World War II and are increasingly getting older and more more prone to, to, to the spread of fire as they age. Why, why don't we have fire alarms in, in high-rise buildings as they do in, in many parts of the world? Why are, is our fire brigade not equipped and, and resourced and trained to, to, to lead the evacuation of, of high-rises as they are in places like Germany? All of those weaknesses in our system, all of which contributed to Grenfell in one way or another, haven't been fixed. There's been quite a narrow focus on, it feels almost like, let's change the regulations as far as we need to and no further, is the way the government has decided to approach it, which I think does tie into the the philosophy which brought us here, really, which is the idea that regulation is a bad thing and should be avoided if possible. Which, you know, when you're talking about life safety, I think it's not the way of asking the question. You should be just saying, is this necessary? That was Peter Apps, Deputy Editor of Inside Housing. And before our next story, let's talk about foreign agent. 
If you're not aware, Foreign Agent is a brilliant new podcast from Navarro Media. I'm obsessed with it. It looks at American connections to the IRA. In the 1970s, the provisional IRA was in the early days of its armed campaign to end British rule on the island of Ireland. In the United States, a small group of activists began organizing on their behalf. They called themselves the Irish Northern Aid Committee, NORAID, and they were looking for a fight. War is always violence, and if that's the only way in history tells us it's the only way to get freedom, then it must be war. My name is Nate Lady, and I'm the host of Foreign Agent, a podcast about the connection between ordinary Irish Americans and a revolutionary socialist guerrilla group. This is a story that travels back and forth across the Atlantic over three decades of conflict. And in six episodes, Foreign Agent will explore how regular Americans became militant advocates for the cause of Irish freedom. It is not often that one has the opportunity to kick the shit out of the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, MI5, and MI6, all at one time. We had it, and we did it. Foreign Agent is available wherever you get your podcasts. On Monday, we showed you this word cloud. It was created by the polling firm JL Partners after they asked 2,000 respondents to describe the Labour leader. The most common response was boring. I mean, it looks like it was the most common response by quite a long way. Well, now we can say that boring label seems to have really bugged Starmer, and he's desperate for people to stop calling him it. The Guardian report, Keir Starmer has urged his shadow cabinet to stop briefing the press that he is boring, warning them, quote, what's boring is being in opposition. Stung by a series of negative stories about his leadership, Starmer angrily urged colleagues at Tuesday's shadow cabinet meeting to focus on the job in hand, telling them it was boring to undermine Labour's project of getting back into government. Several of those around the table then echoed their leader's call for unity and discretion in a lengthy exchange described by one shadow bencher as, ironically, very boring. <laughs> now, Aaron, I know we complain a lot about The Guardian, but that was one of the most entertaining passages I've read in political journalism in quite a while. What did you, um, what did you make of it? It was entertaining, but also they, they would never have said something like that during the leadership election or during the Cor Corbyn leadership when Keir Starmer was clearly a stalking horse for the party right. They would never have said that. But now that there's no real threat of the left, now that there's actually no real possibility of profound progressive change in this country, yeah, okay, let's lighten up. <laughs> Keir Starmer's so boring. And ultimately, <laughs> who does that help in terms of progressive causes? Nobody. Because who do they want to be the leader instead? Yvette Cooper? What, she's so exciting and dynamic and bold and ambitious with so many ideas? Who? So this is exactly what they claimed the British public wanted. Because the reality is, British politics after 2015 was replete with big ideas. Some very good, like public ownership. I think some not so good, like having zero immigration was being touted, for instance, as kind of an ultra-Brexiteer line of thinking, or, you know, Kanzuk, let's be in an economic trading arrangement with uh, Canada or Australia and New Zealand. Not such a great idea, but hey, you know, it's a big idea. It's very different to what we've been doing for a very long time. So you had this flourishing of ideas for, for five years from both the left and the right, and the centre hated it. The establishment hated it. Now you're thinking, oh, Aaron, you're just going on all the cliches. You're an autopilot. You always say this. No, this is exactly, it's exactly what I mean. The people who control liberal thought in this country. Tony Blair has two, not one, two 10 million pound houses. Peter Mandelson has a 10 million pound house. Every blue tick 
liberal pundit who's been in politics for 20, 25 years, owns property probably in zones one to four of London, maybe, maybe more in London, maybe second homes outside London, maybe they're landlords. All these people have done perfectly well in the last 10 years, despite austerity, despite the various political volatility, because they own these assets, they've been going up in value. And actually taxes remained until the last 18 months, you know, pretty stable and, and actually quite low. And they're quite, they're quite happy with that. So they were very happy to signal that they were progressive, they were socialists or social democrat or radical liberals or whatever. But actually they didn't really want to, they didn't really want to rock the boat too much. And of course, we know that in, in social history, every 30, 40 years, well, whether you like it or not, the boat's rocked. Look at after the Second World War, look at the New Deal, look at Reaganism and Thatcherism. That's just how society works. New problems emerge and eventually politicians respond to them. And the question is, is that done in a progressive or a regressive way, a egalitarian way, which centers working class people and labor rights, or one which centers uh, profit and private property? That's the big task and the big ask of politics. But these people don't want to do that. So they just sort of, they, they signal their progressive sort of commitments. But like this article, it's just a bit of fun. And so now the left isn't really on the pitch anymore, Michael. Yeah, sure, they'll mock Keir Starmer. Why are they mocking him though? Well, the reality is because probably a more right-wing leader will come along. I mean, could people not throw that back at you? I mean, is there much, I mean, you criticize Keir Starmer a lot. Are you not just, you know, paving the way for someone more right-wing to, to turn up? Perfectly plausible argument. I mean, I don't think I don't think that's true. I would say Keir Starmer should go because Labour needs a left, more left wing, more charismatic leader. And by the way, I'm open to the idea of compromise. So, if you said tomorrow Barry Gardner would be a better leader than Keir Starmer because he can bring the party together, he's a pluralist, he's far better on the media or whatever, I'd say okay, that's, that's reasonable. I, I, I could engage that argument. But you know what my political commitments are. I'm I'm on the left. And I think fundamentally, we need a transformative politics in response to the last 40 years. What gets me with The Guardian, with the liberal left, is they'll say, yeah, we need a transformative politics in response to the last 40 years. They'll have the columns from, you know, various John Harris or, or whoever. And you do see them, actually, with greater frequency in the last sort of three to six months. But when push comes to shove, they're not really interested. They are not really interested. And that's what irritates me, Michael. And even in a way, you know, I have more respect for the sort of the blue Labourites or the Tories that say, this is the direction we want to take the country on and their actions align with their beliefs. When it comes to the liberal press in this country, their actions do not align with their beliefs. That's what, that's what irritates. Their actions do not align with their purported beliefs, I suppose. You know, they say they're radical. They're always publishing these radical comment pieces. And then the moment a project comes around, which might actually, you know, bring it to pass, they find some imperfection in it. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned John Harris. That's, that's who sprung to my mind. Going back to this boring story. I know you're right, Aaron. This is not the most important thing going on right now, but Starmer does seem to be shaken. And he does seem to be determined to prove just how unboring and cool he actually is. He says the economy is booming when it's shrinking. He's, he's game-playing so much. He, he, he thinks he's on Love Island. <laughs> Trouble is, Prime Minister, I'm reliably informed that contestants that give the public the ick get booted out. Mr Speaker, as for his boasting about the economy, he, he thinks he can perform Jedi mind tricks on the country. <laughs> These aren't the droids you're looking for. No rules were broken. The economy is booming. The problem is, the force just isn't with him anymore. He, th he thinks he's Obi-Wan Kenobi. The truth is, he's Jabba the Hutt. That's the ostrich. 
Yeah. He's not just denying how bad things are. He's yeah. actively making things worse. Yeah. You just see sort of Rachel Reeves in the background trying to look like she's sort of laughing. And Keir Starmer's very, in a forced way, laughing at his own jokes. Aaron, should he, should he try this? Does, could, could Keir Starmer, forget the politics, you know, forget whether or not you want him to be prime minister. Is it worth his time trying to humanise himself? If, if, if people think he's boring, yeah, he could come up with some policies. I'd prefer him to do that. But could he also tell mm. some jokes in Parliament? No, because he's not funny. If you're not funny, don't tell jokes. And if you're boring, don't try to be interesting. And it's something that Owen Jones has said repeatedly. You know, people say, well, in private, he's just so utterly different. Well, actually, every single person I've spoke to who knows him moderately well says he's exactly the same. So I, I, I don't really buy that, no. Look, there are, there are people out there who are misrepresented in public life who are actually quite charismatic, quite funny, quite, you know, compelling individuals that just doesn't translate for whatever reason in politics. Al Gore is another good example, right? In the US, actually quite a, quite a, a decent, you know, intellect, quite charismatic, but it just didn't work in 2000 for him. I don't think Keir Starmer is like that. Keir Starmer is, is, as I've said before, Michael, it's not just about his politics, which I've been very clear about. I don't agree with them. It's the fact, I think, that he, he came to politics really late. You know, he was only a politician in 2015. Before that, he's been a lawyer and a career bureaucrat. You know, the average councillor out there in Britain right now, who's been a councillor for six, seven years, is more familiar and comfortable with what it takes to be a politician and that skill set. And that includes collaborating with others, not attacking and, and stitching up too many people because people like to have their revenge. That's something I think he's clearly not taken on board, but also the charisma thing. You know, I'm sure there is something about him, which, you know, I'm, sh I'm sure some communications genius could squeeze out of him that would make him quite likable. You know, I remember the Joe Biden advert where he was talking about his dad and classic cars. That was genius, right? You know, every boomer Republican's like, oh, he likes classic cars. I mean, that's everybody likes classic cars, right? Of that age bracket. So they've tried it a little bit with the five-a-side football thing. I mean, yeah, they can try that a little bit, but the idea that you're going to lean into it and that he can somehow be a laugh-a-minute figure in the House of Parliaments, cracking jokes that are making us all real with laughter, that's not going to happen. And like you say, his best bet is being what he ran as, right? Substantive, detail-focused, ethically-minded lawyer figure who actually wants to change things for the better. But that isn't who he is either, <laughs> turns out. So uh, they're in a bit of a sticky wicket. And like you say, the boring thing is, is a problem for them because you can go back a pretty long way. Boring people tend not to win general elections. They tend not to. The last time it happened was really 1992 with John Major be beating Neil Kinnock, right? You got the Welsh Wimberg versus a man who was synonymous with being grey and eating peas on spitting image. But generally speaking, the more affable, charismatic candidate in British politics becomes the prime minister, generally speaking. Um, and I, when I look at Keir Starmer, I'm reminded of Ian Duncan Smith, William Hague. These aren't particularly energizing, bold people who get the the juices flowing. And like I say so often, Michael, he's got no oomph. People like a bit of oomph. Even people who detested Thatcher knew she had a project and she really, she stood for what she believed in. People really admire that. Actually, until 2017, that's exactly what Corbyn had too, particularly in 2017. I, I saw so many focus groups or interviews, or I spoke to people working for Navara, and they said, I don't agree with him, but that guy's been saying the same thing for 35 years. 
good luck to him. We need more people in life that stand by what they believe in. I don't really see that much in politics, you know. That is a brand. It's something that actually went over the heads of the blue tick pundits in London. What's Starmer's brand? It's, it's, it's definitely not telling jokes. I've just remembered that there was this uh, clip from his leadership election where he was telling a, a joke at one of his events. It's, I, I need to dig it out. It's about like staying in a hotel and it was the most embarrassing thing I have ever seen in my life. Um, maybe we'll get that up soon on a future show if this boring story continues any longer. Let's go straight to our next story. Johnson's ethics advisor has resigned. Here is the statement by Lord Guite. It's reasonably piffy. He says, with regret, I feel that it is right that I am resigning from my post as independent advisor on ministers' interests. That's it. No details other than that. He is the second ethics advisor to resign in the not even three years that Johnson has been prime minister. The first was Alex Allen, who resigned after Johnson blocked his report into alleged bullying by Home Secretary Priti Patel. Guide appeared before the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee yesterday, where he said he felt frustration over the lockdown busting events that took place in Downing Street. And it was also reported that he threatened to quit after the publication of the Sue Gray report. He wanted the PM to publicly explain his actions. Obviously, Johnson never really gave that explanation, but Guy didn't resign then. Of course, that was all before the confidence vote when it may have actually mattered. So why has he resigned now? What has been the trigger to this? Well, perhaps this was the last straw. Um, in a committee yesterday, left Labour MP Beth Winter grilled him on how independent he actually was. It's reading the court, it says uh, the, the changes in May, um, where there's a public interest that Prime Minister um, may raise concerns, um, such that the independent advisor does not proceed. So he, he's actually got the power to stop. Um, so, so those the, are not the independent exercise. The, no, ex um, uh, indeed. Um, well, um, um, I don't think it helps the discussion, but um, uh, you know, I inherited the role on the basis of the nomenclature that came with it, uh, and I accept that there are arguments about um, independence being, you know, a concept that is either entirely uh, pure and untouched by other considerations, or as I think you've described it, um, uh, something um, imperfectly short of, of mm. full independence. That moment when you realise your job is a total non-job. Wow. You, you're called the independent advisor. You're not very independent, are you? He's like, well, actually, yeah, I mean, it's only called the independent advisor because that's what it was called before I got it. I can't really say anything more than that. Like, it's a very, very depressing answer. I mean, I feel no sympathy for the guy. I assume he's very well paid. I bet he's going to get a great pension after this resignation. But yeah, I can see why you wouldn't want to be out in public defending that role. Aaron, I know this isn't your favorite story, but very briefly, in a minute, um, your, your response to this resignation. Nobody cares. <laughs> Inflation's 9%, Michael. Nobody cares. 10,000 people care about this, and they are either all work on we in Westminster or they're on Twitter. Nobody cares. You've got inflation at 9%, Michael. You've got a, a, one of the most important conflicts in Europe, well, the most important conflict in Europe in the last 30 years. You've got the government trying to open up a holding centre for undocumented migrants in Rwanda. Nobody cares about Lord Guy. They're all on Twitter, or they're all working as journalists. What I would say is you've got these by-elections next week. If the Tories lose in Tiverton, I think this doesn't stop. I say nobody cares. Clearly, it's a political story. We're talking about it, and the media are talking about it, and it's breaking news. And I don't think it will go away. The only way you can really 
guillotine put an end on this 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 narrative about um Johnson. He's not going anywhere by the looks of it. The polls, the last two polls, as we said earlier on, holding up okay. One at the weekend, one up today. They're doing okay. One had them two points behind Labour, one six points. Okay, it's tolerable. There doesn't seem to be sort of efforts to get rid of him. Look, if there was a stalking horse candidate who was popular with the Tory base, popular with Tory MPs, who had a shot of beating Johnson, yes, maybe this story would matter. But in broader context, I, I don't think it does. And like I say, if the Tories win Tiverton, I think you can put this kind of story in a box. If they lose, okay, yes, it will probably rumble on a little bit longer. And I know lots of people don't like me saying this, Michael, but I'm sorry. It's like the wallpaper thing. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. It was pure Westminster story. People did care about Partygate, though, right? So, it's, you know, Party Partygate. Of course, they cared. But this is—I mean, this is this is about a bureaucrat leaving yeah, yeah, a job, yeah. and I, Who's, Lord, no one. I hadn't heard of this Lord, role before all of this. People that don't like the Tories, they'll like Boris Johnson, sure. They'll be like, yeah, this is outrageous. But they don't necessarily know the sort of, you know, the mechanisms as to why it's necessarily outrageous. Come on. They know there's a broader story, which is true, by the way, that Boris Johnson is corrupt, terrible, you know, breaking rules, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, this confirms the thing they already believed. But the story, Lord Guy, maybe I'm wrong, Michael. Maybe somebody will dig this out when there's a documentary about the collapse of the Johnson administration and Keir Starmer has a majority of 100. And historians universally agree that Lord Guy was the moment it all came apart from the Tories. They say, Aaron Bastani, what an idiot. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I'd love to be wrong. But nobody, I, when I'm walking the dog, nobody's talking about Lord Guy. I could be wrong. Let's wrap up there. Aaron, it was a pleasure being joined by you on a Wednesday. It was my pleasure, Michael. I'm back next Friday. And that'll be in the aftermath of the by-election results. That will be interesting. Uh, the Tories could keep Tibbetts. I don't think they will. But I don't think it's going to be a, a steamroller by the Lib Dems either. So, well, who knows? It's still a week. Who knows? But it's going to be competitive. We will be back, as I have just suggested, on Friday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>